All right, Mark chapter 13 now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in this day and age, you have in your grace chosen each one of us here to live in this nation. What I mean by that is that, Lord, we can gather freely in the middle of a neighborhood here and worship you at the top of our lungs, play instruments to you, raise our hands before you, that we can freely in this place all open up one of the many Bibles that we own and read your word, receive it, have a wealth of teaching available in our nation a wealth of Bible studies, have a wealth of Bible knowledge. Lord, we are insanely grateful for that. But I would pray for our nation and our church right now that you would bring our spirituality up to the level of that knowledge. Your word says that knowledge makes arrogance. I'm afraid that as a church in America, we are arrogant. We know a lot, but we don't seem to do a lot. We don't seem to pray a lot. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of evangelism. Lord, in this little tiny church, in this little tiny town, would you change that? Would you change that here, Lord? Would you work in this church in such a way that we be people who are excited for your purposes, for your kingdom, for your plan, for your program? That we would have a sense sense of stewardship of the things and the gifts you've given us? That we would have a sense of responsibility in your kingdom? that we would have a sense of commitment to the great commission and to the gospel. So Lord, don't let this just be a Bible study. Let this be a time where your Holy Spirit would stir in us powerfully, move us to a place of being your men and women, placed in your place at this time in history for your purposes. We ask that you do that in us today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Mark chapter 13 in our chapter by chapter, uh, verse by verse study of the book of Mark. We will be in Mark chapter 13 for about eight weeks or so. Mark chapter 13 is extremely important. It is sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. That because Jesus delivered this discourse on the Mount of Olives. He was answering some specific questions from his disciples that we'll look at in a few moments. But it is within your New Testament one of the most prophetically profound and important chapters you've got in that New Testament. It's a parallel to Matthew chapter 24, which for those who study Bible prophecy is extremely famous. And there's a wealth of stuff in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 has a few more details in the parallel account in Mark 13. It's got 51 verses as opposed to Mark's 37. But we're going to be looking in Mark now for eight weeks. We're going to be studying something that we often refer to as the end times or Bible prophecy. I want us to start by reading the first four verses of Mark 13. Speaking of Jesus, it says in verse 1, And he was going out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Understand that the temple standing in Jerusalem at that time was tremendous. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was great. It was really nice. It was neat. And they're leaving, and one of the disciples said, Jesus, look how amazing this house of worship is. This is for you. Look how wonderful this is. And Jesus shocks them somewhat by saying in verse 2, 
Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Wait a minute. Poor little disciples, they're walking out of the temple that day with Jesus and go, Jesus, look at this wonderful house of worship, this great structure. It's just, it's awesome, isn't it? And Jesus says, I'm telling you that it's going to be torn down pretty soon. Sorry, what I'd say, what I do. <laughs> Jesus here was prophesying of an event that would take place about 40 years later when the Roman armies under the leadership of Titus Vespasian would come in in 70 AD and would level Jerusalem and the temple and really destroy at, for, at that point Israel as a nation as a whole. Jesus is prophesying about that event here. We're going to look at that in detail next week. What is the significance with regards to the temple, the Jews, Christians, and the second coming of Jesus? That's in the weeks to come. Today we continue in verse 3. After that, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? When will these things be? This destruction of the temple that you're speaking of, when is that going to be? And what signs should we, as your disciples are saying to Jesus, what signs should we be looking for? And as I told you before, Matthew 24 gives us more detail. And the detail that isn't given to us in Mark is that they also said, and what will the sign of your coming and the end of the age be? So when is this destruction of the temple going to take place? What signs should we be looking for, Jesus, as your followers from here on out? What will be the sign of your second coming and of the end of the age? And now over the next eight weeks, we are going to study Jesus' very direct and very clear answer to those questions in detail. But it's important for us to realize this, that as we begin to use uh, this phraseology, end times prophecy, it evokes in us um, some questions and some feelings. What does that mean? End time? Prophecy? Is, is time going to end? The last days? Are the days almost over? What does that mean? End time prophecy that we're going to be studying. Well, prophecy simply means this. God telling us beforehand. In this context, God telling us what would take place before it took place. That's prophecy. End times is a little bit of a misnomer in this context. Because it's not really the end of time in total. It's the end of the times in which we live, or the end of this age, or the end of this period. We see in the Bible that there are several ages, or times, or periods referred to from beginning to end. The first time, or age, or period that we see is eternity past. This is, of course, alluded to in the fact that Uh, before the earth existed, God was, and God has always been. It's alluded to in the fact of the doctrine of the pre-existence of Christ Jesus, that he is the eternal God and has always been. So one time, biblically speaking, is er, eternity past, excuse me. And then we move into creation and the subsequent events, and we might call that the Old Testament period. And after the Old Testament period comes a time when Jesus walked the earth, that period of about 33 years or so, about which the Bible has much to say. After Jesus' death upon the cross and then his resurrection, we know from the 
gospel accounts and from the book of Acts that he then ascended unto heaven and that was the birth of the church. When Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit descended and came upon the church with an empowering, it's called the day of Pentecost. Talk about that in weeks to come. And that was the birth of the church. And from that time, about 32 AD until now, is called the church age. Sometimes also called the age of grace, sometimes called the times of the Gentiles. But we'll be calling it the church age, the time in which you and I live. What comes after the church age is the tribulation period. It's a period of time yet to come spoken of throughout the Bible from beginning to end, but given to us in detail in the book of Revelation chapters 6 to 18. That is a time where the effects of man's decisions against God and man's sin is uh, really let loose on the earth and Satan is allowed some reign on earth. The Antichrist appears on the scene. We have the development of a one-world religion and a one-world government. We'll talk about those in the week to come. And simultaneously to the sin of man running rampant, the Antichrist, the devil working through him on the earth, and the devil pouring out wrath, we have God pouring out his wrath on an unrepentant world. All three things happening at one time. It's a bad time. Read the book of Revelation, verses, or chapter 6 through 18. After the tribulation period, there is a time of judgment. After the tribulation period comes a time of judgment. That is where the judgment of the nations takes place, spoken of in Matthew chapter 25. The judgment and restoration of Israel takes place, spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 20. And sometime around that time, we're not given the exact timing, but somewhere in that time frame is the judgment of the believers. That is Christians who are judged not according to their sins, but according to their faithfulness with what they've been entrusted uh, with from God for reward. Not for punishment, for reward. Spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 and other places. It's called the judgment or the bema seat of Christ. So after the tribulation and that period of judgment, then comes a time called the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom. Now, as I'm sharing this, I realize that many of these ideas are new to a lot of you. Uh, many, uh, much of this terminology is brand new to you. Don't let that intimidate you. I'm giving you an introduction today. I want to pique your interest. I want you to say, oh, wow, there's, a little, there's some stuff I know and there's some stuff I don't know. By the end of this eight weeks, if you continue coming, you will know what all of this means and the details thereof. A couple of the details of the millennial kingdom. It has started with the second coming of Jesus Christ back to earth. He sets up his kingdom, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Millennium, 1,000 years. We are told, very fascinating, in the book of Revelation chapter 19 and also in the book of Zechariah, that when the Lord comes again, you and I come back with him. Hallelujah. Amen. We come with the Lord. And we're told in Revelation chapter 20 that we shall reign with him in the millennial kingdom. Very interesting time. Speak about it more later. When that thousand... Oh, by the way, good news. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 tells us that during the millennial kingdom, Satan is bound. Hooray? Oh, it's going to be good. Um, after that comes another time of judgment. Revelation chapter 20, last four verses. The great white throne judgment. This is where those who have rejected the forgiveness of Jesus Christ are judged for their sins, and they go either to the lake of fire or to eternity with God. But if you get to the great white throne judgment, your name wasn't found written in the book of life. 
you go to the lake of fire. After that, the new heaven and the new earth, spoken of in Revelation chapter 21. That is the time where it says, and God shall be among his people and he shall wipe away every tear and there shall no longer be any death or mourning or pain or crying. The new heaven and the new earth and then eternity future. So you see that there's different ages, different times, different periods, biblically speaking. If we were to simplify it now, it would just be the ones that we had in bold. It would be the Old Testament period, the church age, the millennium kingdom, millennial kingdom, and the new heaven and the new earth. But when we talk about, in the next few weeks, end time prophecy, end time scenarios, when we say end time, we mean the end of the time of the church or the end of the church age leading into the tribulation period and then into the millennium. So we have this broad continuum of time and we're just going to zero in on this little part, the end of the church age heading toward the tribulation period. When we talk about end time prophecy, that's generally about which we're speaking. You understand that? Okay, so that's what we're going to be talking about. Not the end of time as a whole, as you could tell, but the end of a time in which we happen to live. God will be telling us in advance what these times will look like and what we might expect. Having said that, I, I want to say something else. We often have attached to prophecy, even the very word, and end times, some uh, weird connotations. You know what I mean? And that's because uh, within the church and outside of the church, there's been false prophets who've made false claims, who've been cessationalists. There have been false teachers there has been inside and outside the church misinformation. There has been inside and outside the church ignorance about what the Bible really says about these things. Hollywood has perverted the idea. Uh, Hollywood came out with that silly movie some time ago called Armageddon. Anybody see it? No one will admit it. Oh, oh gotcha. Armageddon. <laughs> Stupid movie. Bruce Willis. Armageddon, it was a giant comet heading toward Earth, and Bruce Willis had to land on this thing, bore into the middle of it, and blow it up. Armageddon. There's nothing to do with Armageddon. Nothing to do whatsoever. Armageddon is found in Revelation chapter 16. It's found throughout your Bible. It's Hebrew, Har Megiddo, for the Mount of Megiddo. It is a geographical location in Israel. The Bible says that at the end of the tribulation period, there will be a great battle there specifically for control over Jerusalem. We'll talk about the details in the weeks to come. And that is when the second coming takes place. But you see, it is an actual battle at an actual geographical, physical, real location where I've been many times. Napoleon Bonaparte was there. He stood on the hill overlooking Megiddo, the valley, and he said, this is the greatest strategic battlefield the world has ever seen. To this day, if you stand um, on Mount Carmel, you could look down on the Valley of Armageddon, and there you will see a military, um, an Israeli, excuse me, Air Force base. And, and still today, that's, that's a military stronghold for Israel, and we're told in the last days there's going to be an actual battle there. But you see how Hollywood says, oh, it's a comet. And uh, Armageddon, it's a comet coming to earth. And, and they've got no idea what it means. And worse than that, worse than Hollywood, worse than popular culture is unpopular culture, which are the tabloids. The tabloids. You do it just like me. You stand in line at Vaughn's with your milk and your eggs and your butter and your cheese and your bacon, 
and you just want to get through the line and get home and eat your food, and you can't help but seeing these stupid things there. <laughs> there they are, tons of them. And every single one of them is Jesus is coming back on April 5th, 2005, or uh, the last, we're, we're all going to die, or giant comet, or this and that. It it's always has to do with end times. And we see that and we go, I don't like that. Huh? They mess it up for us. Um, God in his Bible has a wonderful plan for the last days. It's unfolding before our eyes. We're going to study over the next eight weeks. It is beautiful. It's wonderful. It is God's grace and God's power and God's goodness. And because it is those things concerning God, Satan will do everything he can to pervert it, to mar it, to make it seem wrong, stupid, silly, and ridiculous. He does so with the tabloids. This one, just grabbed it out of Vons this morning before church, says, literally, says war prophecies of the new Nostradamus. So immediately now on the silly thing, you see the word prophecies. And then you come to church and we talk about prophecy and you say, I hope there's a difference. There's a difference. War prophecies of the new Nostradamus. You open it up and this is what's such a bummer is it's got... uh, you know, it's got virus horror and chemical attack and nuclear terror. It's got this freaky looking guy and he's holding a Bible. I hate that. I hate that. You see, this is Satan's attempt to pervert something that is wonderful, which is the word of God and him telling us beforehand things that would take place. And so I need you to begin to, as we study over the next eight weeks, end time prophecy. I need you to begin to unload the terminology. I need you to begin to strip away all the connotations I just breezed through this thing right before church started. I saw some other stuff that was silly. Um, With regards to the future, Amazon Brew gives teens vision of the future. These teenagers went down, drank this trippy drink in the Amazon, and they saw the future, and they came home and told us about it. Uh, Here's another one. Again, the word prophecy. Prophecies of the Hawaiian fire goddess. It says, uh, protect the earth or she will become your enemy. You see, it's, oh man, it's horrible. And so we need to begin to strip away all that stuff that popular culture, Hollywood, media, false teachers, sensationalism, misinformation, all that it has done to abuse prophecy because the abuse of Bible prophecy does not give us the right then to avoid Bible prophecy. And as a church, we're committed to studying it. And so now I want to share with you just a few thoughts as to why we cannot possibly ignore Bible prophecy. Indeed, why we should be very excited about Bible prophecy. Point number one, prophecy is proof of the truthfulness of Scripture and the existence of God. If I were you, and I lived in a normal town like you do, and people ask me questions all the time, how can you believe in the Bible? Isn't it full of myths? How can you believe in a God that makes all those claims? Isn't that just made up? Isn't that just a myth? If I were you and I heard that statement, I would begin to get very excited. Bible prophecy is the proof, the irrefutable truth, proof of the truthfulness of Scripture and the existence of God. People today want something that is real. How can we trust the Bible? The question is, hasn't it been changed? Isn't it just made up? Isn't it myth? So on and so forth. There's so many religions. What makes you think that the Bible is right and uh, that your God is the right God? 
we will discover in our study over the next several weeks that Bible prophecy is the means that God has given to authenticate his word and his existence. Therefore, you, Christian, who has been entrusted with the gospel, must have a working knowledge of Bible prophecy. It is the means God has given to us to authenticate his word and his existence before a watching world. I want you to see this in Isaiah 41. Please turn to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. Here's what's happening in Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, God's people have once again turned to idols. They've once again turned to false gods. God has brought them into the promised land. He told them when he brought them into the promised land, do not follow after the false gods of the people that I will drive out before you. But the Jews time and time again fell into idolatry and here they are. And God is speaking to them through the prophet Isaiah. And what God is going to do in our text that we're going to look at in just a moment is he's going to challenge the false gods. Now understand that the Old Testament tells us that all those false gods that those pagan cultures and sometimes Israel worshipped, that what was behind them were demonic entities, deceiving people. And so in essence, God is challenging these false gods, these demonic entities, and how he is going to prove that he is the one true God is because he knows the beginning from the end is because he knows the future, because he holds it in his hands, and that is a proof given to us by God that he is the one and only true God. And so we pick that challenge up in Isaiah 41, verse 21. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah now to these false idols, saying, present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. You follow after these false gods, you think they're real, then let these false gods come and tell us about the future, he says. As for the former events, declare what they were. Tell us even about the past. Forget about the future. Tell us something that happened in the past. He's really calling them out. That we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. What's around the bend? What's on the horizon? What's coming down the pike? Prophetically speaking, come on, false gods. If you're real, let's hear it. Then God says in verse 23, declare the things that are going to come afterward, further on down the line, that we may know that you are gods. You see, there is a defining mark of the true God. He knows what's around the corner, and he knows what's coming afterward. And it's revealed to us in the Bible. And then the Lord, it's funny right here, he says, indeed, do good or do evil. Do anything, false gods, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you're of no account. Your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. God sets himself above and beyond all the false gods that Israel and the pagan cultures followed after because they don't know the future. And now he's going to declare in chapter 44 that he alone knows it. Chapter 44. See sort of the conclusion here of it. Isaiah 44, starting verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. 
And who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not, God says, have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. God says he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the one and true and living God because he alone knows the beginning from the end. And you see, if you become a student of the Bible and a student of Bible prophecy, you will begin to see there hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of prophecies given throughout the Bible that have been fulfilled literally and perfectly and completely. That will build your faith in the one true God that will give you a platform from which to share with people who are, doubt, who are doubting, that will build your trust in the word of God, and that will build in you hope for the future because God's past record is your future assurance. And God has been absolutely faithful in everything he ever said that he would do. And he has raised up nations and brought down nations. He is totally in control. Therefore, he can handle your life and the trials therein. Compare, if you would, um, other so-called holy writings to the Bible. The Bible is full of hundreds of prophecies, hundreds, more than half of all the prophecies in the Bible already fulfilled, as I said before, literally and completely. Compare that to the Quran. The Quran has in it not one single prophecy which has been fulfilled. Not one. Compare it with the Hindu Vedas. There is not a single prophecy in those Hindu writings that has been fulfilled and can be proven to be such. The Bible sets itself apart from any other so-called writings because of its prophetic value. In our text, we already read in Mark chapter 13, verse 2, the prediction that the temple will be torn down in some 40 years. And we know now that that is a historical fact. Here in Isaiah, in chapters 41 and in 44 and in 45, you can read it later, but God speaks about a man named Cyrus. He says that Cyrus would be the king of Persia. He speaks specifically about his military conquests, that he would um, uh, uproot Babylon, that he would defeat Babylon, that he would now kind of be the ruler of the kingdoms of the world, and that he would be the one who would allow the Jews, who weren't yet but would in the future be in captivity to Babylon, that he would be the one to say to the Jews, you can go home now and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. What's interesting about God saying that in Isaiah 41, 44, and 45 is Cyrus wouldn't be born for another 150 years, but God was already calling him by name. You understand that he is God. He knows the beginning from the end. One of the most wonderful things that you can study in the Bible is God's plan for Israel. All of Bible prophecy has something to do with Israel. You can't remove it. You can't remove it from any place. To remove Israel from Bible prophecy is to destroy the context and and the meaning entirely. And so one of the neatest things that you can do is study history and what God said he would do with the Jews. You remember way back in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis 13 and in Genesis 15 that God promised to Abraham that he would give him a land that had very definite borders, the promised land, Israel. And that promise was transferred from Abraham to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob and so on throughout the generations. And God said that it was a promise that he would give them the land forever. God says repeatedly concerning the land of Israel that it belongs to Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose God God changed his name to Israel, forever. 
That's why it's so funny that the whole world is fighting about Israel, fighting about the borders, fighting for control of Jerusalem. God already declared that it's his land entrusted to Israel until the end of time. It's a huge part of Bible prophecy. We'll see it. But God promised to Israel that he would give them the land, gave it to Abraham. Second thing he said was that he would bring them into the land. We see it in Exodus chapter 6 and in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that he would bring the chosen people in. It is now a historical fact, not doubted by anybody, that God brought the Jews from Egypt into the promised land. Uh, two trips ago of mine to Israel, I was there in the Negev, in the, in the desert, in the south, um, down toward the border of Egypt, and I had a picnic on the road that the Jews used when they were leaving Egypt. In that very area. I sat there with a Jew and he said, this is it. This is the spot where the children of Israel came out. It's a historical fact. Number three, God warned them when he brought them into the land. He said, if you fall into the idolatry and the immorality of the people that I am removing out of the land before you, then I will remove you from the land. They were supposed to dwell in the land and cultivate goodness and faithfulness and follow and love their God. God said, if you follow after these false gods and you fall into immorality, I'm going to judge you by removing you from the land. Deuteronomy 28, 1 Kings 9, 2 Chronicles 7. Israel was unfaithful to God. They did fall into idolatry. They did fall into immorality. And so God removed them from the land. He said, when I remove you, I will scatter you across the face of the earth among all people from the end of the earth to the other. Deuteronomy 28, 1 Kings 9, Nehemiah 1, Amos 9, and Zechariah 7. It is a historical fact that when Israel ceased to be a nation for the last time after Titus Vespasian came in with the Roman army in AD 70, that they were scattered across the world. It is known historically as a diaspora. And Jews were scattered literally to every nation across the world and have been for some 2,000 years. God spoke of how they would be treated when they were out of their nation. God said to them in Deuteronomy 28, 2 Chronicles 7, Jeremiah 29, 44, etc., he warned them and said wherever they wandered, they would be an astonishment, a proverb, a byword, a curse, and a reproach. You can do a heartbreaking study on how the world has treated the Jews throughout the last 2,000 years. I don't have to talk to you about it. You know about it. You at least know a little bit about it. Wherever the Jews have gone, they have been the butt of racial jokes. They have been the target of violence, the target of discrimination, the target of genocide, the target of extermination. You can study it historically and see that God prophesied it in the Bible. If only they would have obeyed their God and remained in the land. But God is good. God said, I will not leave you out of the land, but I will preserve you as a nation. Now think of how amazing that is. They would be removed from their land. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Pardon me. They would... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> They would cease to be a nation. They would be dispersed from the land across the world, and yet they would maintain a national identity, even though the name of Israel would be changed to Palestine. The land wouldn't be inhabited by them anymore. For a couple thousands of years, they would maintain a national identity and culture and religion. It's never happened before in the world that a small people group was dispersed and yet maintained their national identity without a nation. Where are the Hittites? Jebusites? Perizzites? Tite-tites, parasites, flashlights, where are they? <laughs> All these ancient people of the Old Testament, where are they? They were conquered, 
They were spread and they ceased to be a people group. They lost their national identity. Is it a historical fact that only the Jews maintained that national identity while being spread across the face of the earth? God said he would do so. And then the last thing was he said he would bring them back into the land in the last days. We see it prophesied from Deuteronomy all the way to the end of the Bible. And lo and behold, what happened in 1948? On May 14th at midnight, Israel became a nation again. God had prophesied of it in Isaiah 66. He said, behold, I will make a nation be born in a day. It's never been done. And one day, Israel, who had ceased to be a nation for almost 2,000 years, became a nation. It is unprecedented in history, unheard of, unfathomable, has never happened except for with this small people group, the Jews. And God told us all about it in his word beforehand. It's not the end of the story, by the way. We'll get to the rest in the weeks to come. But you see how wonderful God's word is? What about the Messiah? The prophecies about the Messiah? Oh, there's so many. In the Old Testament, there was over 300 prophecies of his first coming. All the way from Shem, who was one of Noah's sons, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to Jesse, to David, and it's all the way down. It was prophesied the ancestors or the line of the Messiah. So it was specific whose line he would come through, whose family, whose tribe he would belong to. We were given specific um, prophecies about his virgin birth, about his identity, that he would be the eternal savior, that uh, he would be the savior to both Jews and Gentiles, that he would work miracles, that he would be rejected by the Jews. Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, prophesied to the day the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we as Christians call Palm Sunday, prophesied at 173,880 days before it happened to the day. Prophecies in the Old Testament about his birthplace. It says in Micah 5.2 that he would be born in Bethlehem in Ephrata. Had to say Bethlehem in Ephrata because there was another Bethlehem that was closer to Joseph's home in Nazareth. The Bible is very clear. Didn't want anybody to miss the coming of the Messiah. We were told um, 33 different prophecies about the last 24 hours of the Messiah's life before the cross. We were told such details as earlier in the week, him entering in on a donkey on Palm Sunday. We were told that he would be crucified before crucifixion was ever invented. We were told that he would be pierced through. We were told that no bones would be broken in the crucifix, even though it was a practice of the Romans to break the legs of the victims upon the cross. Did it with the two thieves next to Jesus. Didn't break his bones. That was prophesied uh, about 1,000 years before the cross in Psalm 22 prophesied in Zechariah that he'd be pierced with a spear. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41, verse 9, that he would be sold out for 30 pieces of silver, that that silver would be tossed back into the temple and that it would be used to buy the potter's field. All of that was prophesied hundreds of years before it took place. Prophesied about his suffering, his rejection. It was prophesied that around the, cro- around the cross that the um, Roman soldiers would cast lots for his clothes. It was prophesied that he would be given gall and wine to drink. All of these things were told to us beforehand by God because he didn't want anybody to miss the Savior of the world. He just makes things very clear. Now here's what will become even more clear to us. As much as he did not want us to miss the first coming of Jesus, he doesn't want us to miss the second coming. For every one prophecy in the Bible concerning the first coming of Jesus, there are at least eight concerning his second coming. The Bible has eight times as much to say about the second coming of Jesus than the first one. 
And I know now in our faith-lacking little minds, it's, it's sometimes hard to believe, wait, Jesus is actually going to come back? Like for real, physically, he's going to actually really come to earth? Well, it's a physical, or a, a, excuse me, a historical fact that he came one time. Nobody doubts that. 50 or 60 years ago, people used to make the argument Jesus never existed. Now with discoveries of history, manuscripts, and archaeology, extra biblical sources, we know without a question that someone named Jesus of Nazareth, whom people called the Christ or the Messiah, existed physically and literally in Israel. It's a historical fact. There's no questioning it. Nobody can argue that. They can argue his message and his identity all they want, but they can't argue the fact that he came. The Bible said he would. The Bible says eight times more strongly that he will come again. If it was literally fulfilled that he came one time, it is only logical that he will literally come a second time. Though it's hard to believe. I wouldn't believe it unless the Bible said so. One thing we need to realize about Bible prophecy is that it makes up about 30% of the Bible. It makes up 30% of the Bible. So if you're going to ignore Bible prophecy, you've got to take a third of your Bible and just rip it out. You can't do that, can you? Because God committed about 30% of his book to it, the Bible, because he committed about 30%, it speaks to us that it's very important to God. Therefore, if Bible prophecy is very important to God, it should be very important to God's people. We ought to be zealous for it. We ought to be students of it. Beyond that, it says in Revelation chapter 19 that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, all prophecy ultimately is to identify the Savior of the world and bring glory to him. If you ignore Bible prophecy, you ignore the testimony about Jesus Christ. How do you call yourself a Christian, a Christian? We can't ignore it. One of the neat things to know is that God gives us Bible prophecy as a demonstration of relationship. There's a principle from the beginning to the end of the Bible that God reveals secrets to his friends. Genesis chapter 18, before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he told Abraham about it. He told Abraham, he spoke prophetically, told him beforehand what he was going to do. And then Abraham was allowed to participate in that. Abraham was allowed to intercede. We're told in Jeremiah chapter 33.3 that if you come near to the Lord, he will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Those that are intimate with the Lord, those that spend time in the word of the Lord, have things revealed to them because God shows you in the word. Again, it says in Psalm 25 verse 14 that the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. And Jesus gave it to us in the gospel of John chapter 15 verse 15. He said, no longer do I call you slaves but I call you friends. Slaves don't know what his master is doing, but I have told you everything the Father revealed to me. We know that we are considered friends of God because he speaks his prophetic word to us. Because that Bible on your lap, he reveals to us secrets. Why is that? Many reasons, but one is not only to speak relationship. You guys are like that. Someone that you're really close to, you tell them things that you want to tell anybody else. Uh, my mom is a perfect example of this. My mom, um, she's such an amazing lover. She's wonderful. She's great. Everybody wants her to be their mom, but she's my mom. My mom, um, she loves to give presents, and she gives really good ones. I was a really spoiled kid, still am. Uh, <clears throat> but just a few weeks ago, my wife and I, Kate, we were at my parents' house hanging out here in Carp. They just live a few blocks from the church, and we were just hanging out there. Now, this was a couple of weeks ago. 
which would make it what month? March. Now, Mother's Day is when? May. And now we're in April. A couple weeks ago in March, we're sitting on the back patio at my mom's house, and my mom comes out to my wife and says to her sweet little daughter-in-law, do you want an early Mother's Day present? March. In March. Mother's Day is until May. Now, why does my mom do that? She's been doing this my whole life. In like October, she'll say to me, do you want an early Christmas present? My whole life she's been doing this. Why is that? She's so full of excitement for the gifts of love that she gives that she just can't contain it anymore. She's got to whip it out early. She's got to show it. She's so excited. Listen, God is the same way. God's prophetic plan is so amazing, so beautiful, so profound, so wonderful, so right, so good that he just can't keep it from the ones that he loves. So he wrote it down in the Bible that the ones that love him would pick it up and have it revealed to them like an early Christmas present. It's glorious. So it speaks of relationship. And it's a means of God caring for his people. He warned the Jews over and over again. Many prophecies are, um, uh, they're dependent upon the actions of people. In other words, he said to the Jews, if you do this, then thus and so. If you don't do this, then thus and so. He warned them because he cared for them. Don't fall into idolatry and immorality and you will dwell in the land forever. But if you do that, I'm going to remove you from the land. You're going to be a curse in the whole world. You'll be persecuted, but there'll be a time where I bring you back to the land, having maintained your national identity, and you'll become a nation again. So God warns his people through Bible prophecy. We're going to see this over and over again in the next eight weeks in Mark chapter 13. In Mark chapter 13, in verse 5, the first thing that Jesus said in response to the question the disciples asked him was, see to it that no one deceives you. God wants you to know truth. He knows that the end times would be full of junk like this would be full of lies from the media and from the enemy and from false teachers. And so caring for his people, he begins to say there in Mark 13, see to it that no one deceives you. And then he says in verse 7, don't be frightened about the things taking place. And then he says in verse 9, be on your guard, be alert. He says in verse 11, but don't be anxious. He says in verse 13, endure to the end and you will be saved. There comes a time in verse 14 when he says to the Jews, okay, now this prophetic scenario is unfolding. This is the time when Jews, you need to flee to the mountains. And then he says to them in verse 18, but pray that that might not happen in the winter, speaking of the Antichrist revealing himself in the temple of God halfway through the tribulation period. So he reveals to them what's going to happen. He says, here's my advice, flee to the mountains. This is what's going to happen because of sin in the world, but pray that it doesn't take place in the winter. God would love to have compassion and mercy on you. Even as prophecy unfolds, we can play a part through prayer. And then in verse 20, he said, "Um, unless the Lord shortened the days of the tribulation, no one would be left, but for the sake of his people, he shortened the days. In verse 23, he says, take heed, look, I've told you everything in advance. In verse 31, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. In other words, he's saying in Mark 13, 31, times in this world are going to get a little crazy, it's going to get a little weird, it's going to get a little gnarly, but my word will stand as truth. It says in verses 33, 35, and 37, take heed and be on the alert. God wants us to be informed. He wants us to be aware. He wants to build faith into our lives. And so when we see the motive of God for giving, us Bible, for giving to us Bible prophecy, it removes some of the weirdness out of it for you, I hope. God does it as an expression of relationship, as a way to care for you, to warn you, to express to you. And there's nothing weird about that. 
He does it that we might believe with confidence and that we might live with confidence. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 19, from now on, I am telling you beforehand so that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am. Jesus, just like God did in the Old Testament, puts the proof of his deity in his prophetic word. I'm telling you before it happens, so that you will believe that I am, that I am God in the flesh. And so because of God's prophetic word, we can believe with confidence, and we can also live with confidence when things begin to get a little scary. Turn to Titus. Titus in the New Testament. Remember all the T's are together. First and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, and Titus. If you hit a P, you went too far. Go back to T. We might put this under the point, which is point three. I don't know if you can follow me, but point three is prophecy is to have a practical bearing on our lives. It is never to be just for a growth in knowledge or ooh, ah, excitement or who is the Antichrist or when will they rebuild the temple or where's the red heifer or all these other things. It is to have a practical, when I said red heifer, some of you were like, what? (laughs) I guess we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Um, It is to have a practical bearing upon our daily decisions, upon the way that we live. Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Speaking of the first coming. Instructing us, okay, here's instruction for us as to how to live. To deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. There we see that phrase age or time or period. We're living in the church age, okay? We're talking about the last days of the church age. And the Bible says that we are to live sensibly, godly, righteously in the present age. Now look what comes in the next verse. Looking for, we are to be looking for the blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. This is speaking of the rapture of the church. We'll speak about it extensively in the weeks to come. But we are to live in a way that we are looking for the appearing of the Lord. Do you know that the Bible teaches that the rapture of the church, that is when he comes for his people to remove us prior to the tribulation. Because remember, the tribulation is part of it is God pouring out his wrath on an unrepentant world. The Christian has already repented. The wrath that was due to the Christian has already been poured out upon Jesus Christ at the cross. It would be nonsensical and inconsistent with the character of God for him to pour out wrath on a Christian during the tribulation period. There will be those who get saved during the tribulation period after the rapture, but we're told that they are beheaded for their faith. We'll study all of this in the weeks to come. But we are to be looking for the appearing of the Lord for us. And that is to have a practical effect on our lives. Look at the next verse. Who gave himself for us that we might, that he might, excuse me, redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. Moving right along into chapter three. 
Remind them, you and I, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for good work, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now there in those few verses, in those seven or six verses or so, we have a meaty passage on how to live as Christians. And what is right in the middle of that big, fat, moral sandwich is the rapture of the church, the coming of Jesus Christ for his people. You see that the practical living of God's people is always wrapped around the prophetic word. Always. It is to have an effect on how we live. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, that those who have the hope of the rapture in themselves are to purify themselves even as God is pure. In other words, because the rapture is imminent, because it could happen at any time, you don't want to get caught with your hand in the cookie jar. You understand what I'm saying? When the Lord comes back for us, we want to be found living for the Lord. Because the time is short, as we will see in our next few weeks of study. We want to be about the Father's business. The exhortation of a parable that Jesus gave in Luke 19 is that we are to occupy until he comes. Literally in the Greek, it means to tie down, to hold down, to seize, to monopolize. Do you know that as Christians, we are to hold righteous ground in this world? And yet it seems so often the church lets it slip away. That we turn a blind eye to the things where we should make a standing for righteousness in our schools, in our community, in our workplaces with regards to abortion and rights and so on and all these other things. We ought to be standing up. We are to occupy for righteousness until he comes. It should change the way that we think about evangelism. We should say, okay, wait a minute. According to the Bible, it's very clear that the coming of the Lord is soon. I don't want anybody that I know and love to miss the rapture of the church. I don't want anybody to miss it. Therefore, our lips should be very loose with the gospel. We should be ready at any moment to share the gospel. It should be a daily goal and concern of our lives to tell people about Jesus. I mean, a conscious goal upon which you act to tell people about Jesus. Because the news is so wonderful. Hello, it's called the good news, the gospel. And because his plan is so clear, and because we're living in the end of the church age, now is the time to tell people about the Lord, to be zealous for holiness, that we don't get our hands caught in the cookie jar, so to speak, to have our priorities straight, to have a correct sense of stewardship. God, I want to be investing in your kingdom. The time is short. I want to be, as Jesus said, rich toward God. I want to be laying up treasure in heaven. So it ought to change our priorities a little bit and the way that we look at things and think about things and say, okay, Lord, you've entrusted me with gifts and talents and resources. How can I use these in these last days to build your kingdom? That's the mindset of a prophetically aware Christian. Christian who has no sense of Bible prophecy. He's just kind of praise the Lord, amen. And that's cool. Praise the Lord, amen. But there's more. With Bible prophecy comes a tremendous responsibility to live according to what we know. It's sad. I was speaking to a a pastor recently, and he pastored a church in California here. And uh, we were trying to, we were just kind of finding common ground, seeing where we were on issues and talking about uh, church practice and doctrine and theology and stuff like uh, the gifts of the Spirit and the inerrancy of Scripture and and then came uh, eschatology, the study of the end times, what we're talking about. So, so what, do you, what is your view on the end times? Ah, I don't know. Pastor, what do you mean? What's your view on the end times? Are you pre-trib? Are you pre-millennial? We will learn these terms in the next few weeks. You'll know what they mean. What are you? 
Do you believe the rapture happens pre-trib, before the tribulation? Do you believe in the literal, physical second coming of Jesus Christ before the millennial kingdom, meaning you're pre-millennial? What's your view on end times? Uh, Teacher of the Bible, tell me. Eh, whatever you think. Whatever I think. You're the pastor of a church, man. Get it to, what, what is your view on end times? I know, it just doesn't seem that relevant. You know, God is going to do it. It's going to happen later in the future. It doesn't seem relevant. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. The Bible says that Bible prophecy is extremely relevant. In fact, without Bible prophecy, there is no salvation. Last week, we had a wonderful Easter service. Dozens of people came forward and got saved to the glory of God. Amen. That was wonderful. But listen, they got saved because they believed Bible prophecy. They believed that there was a future judgment for sin. Why do they believe that? Because the Bible said so. If there's not a future judgment for sin, then it was silly for Jesus to die upon the cross and it's dumb for anybody to become a Christian. Why get your sins forgiven by some Jew that died upon a cross? Why is there even a need for that if there is no future judgment? The only reason we think there's a future judgment is because the Bible prophesies about it, reveals the future to us. Without Bible prophecy, there is no salvation. Your salvation rests upon the fact that you believe Bible prophecy. See how important this is? can't get away from it, church. I'm belaboring this point because I want this church, each individual member, to become a student of the Word of God, to become a student of Bible prophecy. It's so wonderful for your life, so powerful for your evangelism. And also, point number four, I don't know if you can follow me, point number four is that fulfilled prophecy provides a guide to the meaning of history. I'm going to go through this last point very quickly now provides a guide to the meaning of history. Philosophies, philosophers debate, what does it all mean? All the good things, all the bad things, everything that's happened, what does it all mean? The Bible, through prophecy, tells us very clearly that it is God's redemptive plan unfolding and that there is tremendous meaning. Last point, lied to you, if you can follow me, point number five, is that yet to be fulfilled prophecy reveals the goodness and the righteousness of God. Have you ever noticed how in this world people get away with wickedness every single day? And it's easy for someone to look at that and say, now, so tell me about this God you believe in. Don't tell me about this God you believe in. Look what's going on in our world. Look at the wickedness. Look at the maiming. Look at the rape. Look at the torture. Look at the molestation. Look at the rip-offs. Look at all these things. And how are you going to tell me about this God? Either your God is not all-powerful because he doesn't do something about it, or your God is not all-good because he doesn't do something about it. Don't tell me about a good, all-powerful God of the Bible. Wow, really good point. Unless you've read the Bible. Unless you read the end of the book where we are told that God will right every wrong, that he will judge every deed, that everyone will be held accountable, that everything that was spoken in the darkness will be revealed in the light, that God will make all things right. We are told that at the judgment, Not one mouth will argue with God. Everything will be revealed as it is and justice will be dealt out. But you see, that's a matter of Bible prophecy. If you're only looking in the here and now, it doesn't seem like there's a just God. He can't possibly be a good God. He can't be all powerful. If you know Bible prophecy and you know the end and that we're moving toward it and that he is fulfilled literally and completely 100% every past prophecy, it means that the future one of him setting everything right will be fulfilled as well. You understand why prophecy is important? Thank you, Lord, for your word. Oh, thank you, Lord, for reminding me. See this chart? 
I've still got four minutes and 34 seconds. See this chart? Do you know how long that is? That's a little countback clock that's set for an hour when I teach. It hasn't gotten to an hour yet. Four more minutes left. Okay, you ready? See this chart? Very important. Just real quickly, if you start at the left, you're going to need this chart for the next eight weeks, every week that we come. By the time we move through this study, you'll be able to fill in every one of these references with a scripture reference. You'll know all of the terminology. You will know exactly what it means. But we see fulfilled prophecy, the left, the first coming of Jesus Christ. We see the cross. We see his resurrection and his ascension. We see on the bottom there, before that gap in the black line, the church age, the age in which we live. The beginning of the church at Pentecost. Do you see the big vertical arrow in the middle? What's it say? The rapture of the church. What is the only prophetic event that had to take place before the rapture of the church? Israel becoming a nation. When did that happen? May 14th, 1948, midnight, Israel became a nation. The next thing on God's prophetic timeline is the rapture of the church. It could happen at any time. It could happen now. Oh. I really thought it was going to work that time. And so on, so forth, the end of the chart. I'll get you next week. But bring this chart with you next week and every week thereafter. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is so good. Just pray that you would make us a church that loves your word because it, falls, it causes us to fall more in love with you. It causes us to know you more completely. Pray that you would give us this week a hunger for your word, that as we talk about these prophetic scenarios, we would want to dig in, to dive in, to know for ourselves, to be students. Lord, I just pray for anyone who's going through hard times right now, where things seem unclear, scary, difficult, and uncertain, that you would allow your past record to be their future assurance. That right now as we begin to worship you and sing about how great and wonderful and beautiful you are, that you would remind each one in their hearts as they need, that you are absolutely faithful to them, that you know them, that you call them by name, that you love them infinitely. And if you're able to direct the nations of the world and bring the whole thing to a right close, you're able to make things right in their lives. Remind us of such things. Make these ideas very personal. Thank you for your faithfulness to your word, God. You are God. Your word is right. We worship you for that.